Welcome to Supex Radio, a weekly talk show devoted to startup and early stage entrepreneurs, venture investing, and small businesses in general. For more information, including past broadcasts, future episodes, and our radio network affiliates, please visit our website, www.sup-x.org. And remember to follow us on Twitter, at the Supex. That's at T-H-E-S-U-P-X. I'm your host, Bob Fitz, and our guest today is my friend uh, and serial entrepreneur and investor, Joy Randells. Joy, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So, uh, a great place to start. Joy, I'm always uh, fascinated and admire the breadth uh, and depth of your background, and uh, I think it'd be really interesting for the audience just to hear a little bit about, um, you know, where you came from and some of the things you've done. And then obviously we'll go back and dive deeper into some of them, but you've had a really fascinating, I wouldn't even call it career. You've had an interesting path. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I started, actually I started selling door to door when I was nine years old, which is a little odd. Um, Started an errand service at age 16 and a transportation company at 18. And then I went into tech at about age 20. Um, I worked for Apple um, and that was pretty awesome to get to work for Guy Kawasaki and to um, be there during the, the jobs years. Um, after that, I, I worked for a manufacturer's rep firm, which most people have no idea what that is, but it was all technology products. So we sold products for companies like Sony and Apple and you know Samsung. And we had a list of probably 20 different products on our line card um, that we sold into distributors, retailers. Um, and large corporations. So large clients were also part of that. And I left there and went to work. Um, we, we launched a company called Cheyenne Software. We took that company public um, over the course of about five years. At uh, the time we were acquired by CA, we had 80% market share in um, backup and data recovery products worldwide. Um, as we also were the very first uh, cybersecurity product. We had the very first... Um, product for antivirus called Inoculan, and we had about 65% market share at that point in time. CA bought us for a billion and a half dollars. Um, I stayed at CA uh, running different divisions for them, ultimately ending up uh, launching and running the eTrust business division for them, so their cybersecurity division. And, um, you know, I'm not a big company person, so you can only take that for so long. And uh, left and went through, and we did quite a few other startups um, over the next 10, 15 years in primarily in cybersecurity, um, a company called Business Layers that was bought by Integrity that then was bought by CA, um, uh, first wireless security product that was out there, everything B2B, and uh, then kind of did a little bit of a diverse trip from that. So I like, I've done some turnarounds uh, out in Austin and in California for the venture capitals and private equity guys. And um, I ended up meeting up with some guys and we started the first mobile content delivery network, which we ultimately sold to Akamai um, after that. But everything's always been B2B. I understand the B2C market, but not really my first and foremost thing. (laughs) I right now have two cybersecurity companies. One's in the physical security space called Envision Communications. Another one is Applied G2, which is uh, primarily board level and CSO level uh, advisory services. And my fund, New Market Partners, actually invests and uh, advises. We also do some consulting work with startups in that space. And Citizen Investor, which is a, crowd, a civic crowdfunding platform. Yes, pretty pretty out there in a bunch of different ways, but everything kind of ends up coming back to tech. 
and everything pretty much is a B2B play, even though the consumer may be the end customer. And lots of uh, cybersecurity in there. Um, lots of cybersecurity. So out of curiosity, a couple things. Uh, you said, I'm not a big company person. I've been at a very large company too, and I could imagine why, but you know, there's a lot of people in our audience. I- I'm curious what that meant for you. So I, I think over time you learn what you're good at and where you're most comfortable. Uh, you don't know that until you've done it. So sometimes you're going through this list of, hey, I want to do this. I want to do this. It's sort of like climbing that ladder. And, you know, when you get there, I'll give you an example. At Cheyenne, when we hit about 500 employees, I walked down the hall one day and somebody said, hey, Joy, how are you? I had no idea who this person was. <laughs> I'm like... I'm great. And then I immediately go over to the next cubicle that was sitting there. And I'm like, hey, who is that? And what do they do? And, you know, that's the day you kind of realize that now people can be anonymous in a company, right? And everybody's different. Some people love that. You know, we took that company public. We had almost 2,000 employees when we were acquired, right? And then we got bought by CA, which had at the time, I think, 38,000 employees worldwide. There's some companies that are great companies. I think Akamai is a great big company, right? They're almost 2 billion now. I think it's CA when I left, we were at 6 billion, right? I don't like the bureaucracy and the anonymity inside of those companies. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. We need those big companies. I'm, I'm not dinging them. Like I loved being at Apple, even though we were a big company, right? Maybe it's just a different culture. And I think some companies have better culture. I think Akamai is a good company. And I, I think the majority of the employees are quite happy there. So if it's for you, then great. But for me, I want to be where I get to work with the people and kind of see what happens. I want to see the end result of my work and I want to see the end result of their work versus kind of having this middle layer that's just kind of fluffy and sort of there and people can kind of go through the day to day and not really make a contribution and no one really knows or cares. It's personality based for sure. I mean, everybody's got a certain fit uh, based on your risk tolerance too. I mean, it's, you know, some people are better in large corporations and and they're better at being at large corporations uh, than others. Um, So it sounds like you were at Cheyenne from basically zero to 500 ish employees. (laughs) Tell, look, there's probably more stories there than we have radio time for, but uh, that's a fascinating journey. You know, you mentioned one of the things that changed and that is once you scaled, then you institutionalize, which is great. It brings you stability and you have functions (laughs) and, you have technocrats, and that's how you make it and get sold into a CA. Sure. Uh, but getting there is a wild ride. You know, in the early days, were you your typical poorly funded uh, startup, or did y'all come together in a more uh, well-backed way? No, we we raised money. Like, the founders of the company had money, yeah. um, you know, the very first guys. I was employee number 16, so I wasn't the very first one in. I was in number 16. At the time I started, we literally had people from New York will love this. So we were in um, we were in New York and um, eventually our office ended up being in Garden City. Mm-hmm. But where, where we in the city in, were you out of curiosity? I lived there. We were 15. in Roslyn. So we were, we're on Long Island. So we're oh, okay. in Roslyn, right off the LIE. Yep. Our very first office was in the middle floor of a old building next to the freeway. And there was a dentist office on the middle floor. Our sales organization was in the basement and our developer organization was on the top floor. You could literally smell the stuff from the dentist's office in there. It was pretty hilarious, actually. <laughs> and um, and from there, you know, we grew. 
Um, we ended up going like the buildings that are still there, three, four and five expressway Plaza. We ended up taking over all of those wow. um, over time. And then we had a big fancy office in garden city that won a design award and all this other fun stuff in, in, in New York. But I would say the thing that I, I loved the team at Cheyenne, it's pretty funny. One of my, one of, I had a couple that are now married that each of them worked for me at Cheyenne and um, they just visited me here about three weeks ago. That's so awesome. And um, I mean, we've kept in touch through all this time, but the team we had there was amazing. And I think it was the culture inside the company and the fact that the founders really cared about the people and the outcome. And I mean, all of us, we were like family and we, those of us who've been there from the beginning, we treated each other like family. And I think that that perpetuated itself through the teams that we had. So we were very fortunate. I think it's very hard to do that today. But, you know, we we had venture capital. Uh, we worked really hard. Now, the difference is like people are like, oh, you had plenty of money. It's like it wasn't like that. To put it in perspective, until we were actually until we right before we got acquired by CA. So for five years, we did our quarterly management meetings on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So after we've all been traveling, working all week, like yeah. the, man- the management team gets together Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for, you know, your management meeting, determining qu- quotas for the next quarter, you know, all the other things. How many companies do you know where regions bid against each other to say, I can sell more? And that was our culture there. It's like, no, nah, I think I can do more than that. Like make my stretch goal higher. Like that's very uncommon, but it was part of our culture there. And I think that, you know, it was the spirit of healthy competition. And we believed in rewarding everyone, not just the sales organization. I think that helped with the culture as well. What was your role there? Um, so I started running the East Coast. And then I eventually moved to do like all of channels. And I also d- ended up ho- handling what we called our corporate accounts. So we did 90% of our business through channels, right? Mm-hmm. Through channel partners. Mm-hmm. But we had some direct accounts and we eventually pushed that the fulfillment through the channel. But companies say like Coca-Cola, UPS, Pepsi-Cola, Delta Airlines, they want a human being that works for the manufacturer. You have to do that. And so we continue to manage those accounts, even though the fulfillment was handled by our reseller channel. So kind of running all that, which meant that pre-sales systems engineering that's in the field, as well as sales, you know, reported up into you. And then we helped with uh, the marketing side of it. We did all of our own trade shows. We ended up having our own trade show department. We did big trade shows, but I've handled the federal government. And it's a very open organization. And it was until the very end. I mean, our CEO, at the end, we changed CEOs about two years before the accident, about three years in. And the person who was the original developer ended up being the CEO. And um, his name Ray, was Ray Jane Y. And Ray Jane went to school at Stony Brook an immigrant, a Chinese gentleman coming into the country and um, wrote the first NLM for netware, to put it in perspective, right, for the talent of this gentleman. But we had an open door policy. Like we didn't close our doors. It wasn't that kind of thing. And I mean, you know, you could walk in Ray's office. You could be the guy who's the janitor and walk in Ray's office and have a conversation. So culturally, I think the company was very different. And our teams that, you know, we had really treated each other Kind of like brothers and sisters. So I've, I've had that in a few companies, but that's a rare thing to find, I think. You know, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned several themes I'd like to talk about a little bit more. Uh, one, one is, so uh, culture. 
and yeah. how critically important culture is and maintaining culture as you scale. You know, how did how did you do that? And you know, what were things that y'all actively did to maintain culture? Was it was it something that was thoroughly vetted in recruiting? Was it activities you did like every Friday? I mean, I, look, there's the the proverbial you know foosball table, but what what were some things that y'all did that to maintain culture as you scale? Because you know, look, when you're 600 employees, an open door policy was actually not good because the CEO can't get done anything. But when you're right. when you're 100, yeah, it's really cool and it does add to the culture and creates openness and transparency and inclusiveness, etc. So, you know, how did y'all develop um, culture? I think everybody, each team was probably managed a little differently. My philosophy has always been, and I think that this did perpetuate throughout the company, that open communication really has to occur if you want people to work together and you want everybody rowing in the same direction. You can't hide things. You can't be secretive. Certainly, you know, there's certain things you can't say in a public company every other day. But the reality is the goals of that company, where we're moving, the direction we're moving in, those kind of things, you have to be open about that. You also have to take feedback. So I think the other thing that really helped us was we had an open feedback loop. In other words, even as we grew and we had teams of product managers, right? So I've got somebody responsible for each product group and those kind of things. We had a conduit from the field so that customer feedback from the field got filled back through mm-hmm. product management. And we brought product management out in the field. The other thing that we did was we had inside and outside salespeople like most organizations. Mm-hmm. I made it mandatory that every inside person had to travel with their outside sales counterpart once a quarter. The reason for that is I, the customers talk to that inside person all the time, right? And it, I also think it's easy to look at it and for one person to say, oh, that person's job's easier than mine. They have no idea how hard it is for me. So I said, hey, you know, I want you, you have to be inside and see what they do. And they have to be outside and see what you do once a quarter, every quarter, you know, and the same was true for our pre-sales engineers. It's like, nope, you have to come and sit in tech support or in with the service guys who are doing the implementations every quarter and vice versa. So everybody needs to understand what it's like to be in that other person's shoes because it's not always easy, right? Everybody has bad days and good days and some days are crap and some days are awesome. And I think it's important the teams work together better. You have better synergy and there's a clear understanding. It also makes sure that they communicate. The other thing I did, and you know, it's funny, I was thinking about our conversation today. I believe that one of the things I learned early on is how to manage remote teams. A lot of that comes from how you communicate. I used to communicate every single day with my direct reports, and I made that mandatory for everyone under me to do that with their direct reports as well. So say, for instance, if you're somebody working in the field and you've got salespeople based all over, or you've got engineers for that matter, you can hold a virtual scrum meeting, right? It doesn't have to be in person. You can do that virtually. And we have the technology to do it a whole bunch of different ways today. But, you know, the reality is pick up the phone, determine what your plan is for the day. Like, what do you need? And it should be able to be done in five minutes maybe 10 if there's a problem, right? So it's super quick, but it ensures that everybody who's on the team knows exactly what's going on. And you're communicating the same message to customers and internally. So to me, I think that's really, really important. The other thing is I like everybody to have a little bit of a, I don't know, a stake in the game, right? Meaning that we did a good job of allocating options, which help people have a vested interest in the success of the company. But we also paid commission pretty much across the board in some form or another to everyone. So it's like, if there's a big win, then everybody wins. If we're taking a massive loss, then everybody suffers. 
And that's the way it should be if you're part of a team. So there's a lot of ways to structure compensation plans, but we were pretty clear on that, that, you know, I believe whatever you incentivize is what gets done. So make sure that your compensation plans for everyone are very easy to understand. I don't want people spending hours trying to figure out how they're getting paid because that's hours they can spend working. Right. And I think, you know, a little give and take along the way. It's like, I'm a big believer on it. If the job gets done, that's what I care about. I'm not super concerned with the micromanagement side of it. You know, hey, you understand what your tasks are. You're a grown person. So either you're going to be on the team or you're going to be out the door. And, you know, that's kind of how I look at it. Not to be, you know, really curt about it. But the reality is if you perform, you'll get rewarded. If you don't, then you won't. And it'll show up over time. So I think those things work really, really well. We did something else on our team that was pretty funny. So, you know, you get the employee of the quarter, you get to this person, the quarter, all that other stuff. And so one day I said, you know, what about the people, what if there's a different order, a, a different award? And it's all about which person contributes the most to our overall success. I don't care what their role is, right? So we created this thing called a golden hammer. And literally it was a hammer in a little glass case, right? Mm-hmm. That was gold plated or gold you know, had some kind of gold on it. I don't know. Right. I had to do that for me. So it's like, and this alternated each quarter. It was given to a different person, right? So you had to give the award up. If you won it last quarter and you didn't get it this quarter, you have to give it to the next person. So it became kind of like this badge of honor inside the organization that, hey, there's this thing and I want that sitting on my desk, right? Like I want to be the one who was, you know, the top dog. And so it has gone from people who were in the shipping department when we had a, a you know, an end of the quarter rush to meet, mm-hmm. right? It's gone to the, the systems engineer who like spent his night, literally spent overnight in one of our clients, um, data centers, rectifying a problem that we had that resulted in a huge sale on the other side, right? And a very happy customer because their whole legal department went down. <laughs> so at a very, a very large public company whose whole legal department went down. Oh my so, I mean, there's, there's things like that, but I mean, to me, it wasn't about the salesperson winning it. I mean, sometimes it was a salesperson, but generally it wasn't, it was someone else who made this other went above and beyond to make this other contribution. I we had administrative assistants win it because they were the people who made sure that, you know, proposals got out for something or, you know, took care of a special customer who had a big problem. And I, I think those kind of things, are important and it makes everyone understand that the whole organization is only as strong as the weakest link on the team and that link can be anything no one's job and i'm a big believer in this today no one's job is more important than another inside the company when one person fails we all fail so if you are the guy shipping the product out of the room below and that doesn't happen then we lose right if you are you know the tech support person who lets one of our you know clients get really angry and frustrated, we lose that customer, then we all lose. So everybody's job's equally important. They're just different. Right. Well, presumably all jobs are important or you wouldn't have them. I mean, why waste well, the money? Every time I goes, oh, but the CEO is more important. I'm like, no, the CEO just has a different job, right? Like everybody has a job. The CEO has a job. The CTO has a job. We all have jobs. But if anyone fails, that, that whole chain underneath that person will fail. So, you know, you talk about Oaken Communications. Did that include things like, particularly when y'all were smaller, you know, when y'all were up against, uh, you know, maybe payroll issues or, or funding issues? I mean, were people, were you transparent about, look, you know, burn's burning and uh, we're, we're going to need another round and it might get tight. We might have to 
skip a paycheck or I mean, did it ever get to that? Did we were, did, did people uh, not, at Chi- not, not at Cheyenne, but it did at other companies. So we had another company out in Austin, ClearCube, and we absolutely did that. Right. And we were transparent. You know, people are not stupid. Right. right? And, and people see like management huddling in a room. Constantly. Right. <laughs> and, and, you, and you see your VCs coming in and out. Right. That's not normal behavior. Right. And, and so, you know, you can be transparent or the rumor mill will, you know, come up with something far worse probably than what's really going on. So, yeah, I mean, you, you have to do that. I mean, and if you end up like in a situation where maybe business isn't as good and you're going to have to take a down round, right, you need to be transparent about that because everyone you've given options to, it impacts them. Mm-hmm. It's their future. And, you know, not being transparent, uh, I think that causes much bigger problems in the long run. And I know some people say, well, hey, you know, if you can fix it, you should fix it first before you tell them. I think that depends on how long it's going to take you to fix it. If you can fix it really fast, fine. But if there's a chance that, you know, you're going to have to let some people go, you're going to have to cut programs or, you know, people are going to have to defer pay for two weeks. That's different because as a founder, you sign up for that stuff, right? Not everyone else does. And communication show trust. I mean, and if you're trying to build any kind of culture, I mean, it's based on trust and respect and they do have shares or if nothing good, their livelihood, if nothing, you know, they don't have shares, their livelihood depends on it. I mean, for anyone who's ever been laid off or fired or, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's, it's the fear of that. That's actually worse than that. I mean, at least knowing, you know, what the, what the situation is, let people kind of make some reasonable plans, you know? Well, well, and to your point, right? Like you will lose some people if that continues, right? It's, it's normal. Um, everyone has a different risk tolerance and people have, it may be them, it may be their spouse, it may be their kids, right? There's, there's a million other things, reasons why maybe they're taking care of their parents. You, you don't know. Right? right. But those kind of things impact people's ability. But I would rather be honest because if I tell that person up front, and even if they leave and it's someone I really want to keep and I can't convince them to stay, I did, I, I go to sleep at night because I did the right thing. And they were able to make the right decision for themselves. We'll figure out a way to get through it. If it's meant to be, I think we'll figure out a way to get through it. But I would rather do that now because that person, I will still have a good relationship with that person 10 years later. If I lied to that person, it's unlikely that we'll ever mend that fence. Mm -hmm. So this is a small industry. Like people don't get it. But, you know, people I've worked with. I could go out and, and give you a list of probably three or four hundred companies that they work for now, right? Whether it's their own startup they started or whether they're working for another big company or they're on, you know, like Shlomo Kramer's and like startup number seven, you know, and is a rock star, right? You get all those people. But if I lied anywhere along the way, then they're never going to trust me again. And I don't blame them. I wouldn't trust me either. You had mentioned, so you've talked about some things that helped created your culture. I mean, open communications, feedback loops, some communication practices, such as daily contact with, in, your, in your department with your direct reps, the golden hammer. Uh, and it, you mentioned several times when we started off this segment talking about family. And that that's a cliche at a lot of places. I mean, I mean Charles Manson came from a family, too. So, well, yeah, I mean, I mean so there's, there's all kinds of, there's perfect, there's a lot of really dysfunctional <laughs> families. They might outnumber the ones that are functional. So, True. <laughs> so, I mean, those were management practices, but do any examples come to mind that were especially humane that you thought, you know, this, this, this is beyond the, the cliche, you know, you know, it, it's funny. 
I actually one of my favorite stories and one of my favorite people. I truly love this man. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not my it's not my husband. So, <laughs> um, but uh, at Business Layers, which was the company I went to after I left CA, um, we were the first um, provi- identity and access management control is what you would call it today. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first company that that did that. The four founders were Israeli, mm-hmm. and then there was myself. And uh, I ran sales and marketing worldwide. And Adrian Viego, who, if anybody kind of knows the Novell history, was Eric Schmidt's right-hand man at Novell, was our CTO. So the six of us were the group. And um, actually, when I came on board, the VCs were getting ready. They needed to raise money. And the, the VCs were looking for someone who could lead from like, you know, a couple of million to 60 million was really the, the goal, right, in, in revenue. And... Um, the CEO, his name is Izar Shay. He's back in Tel Aviv now, working for Canaan Partners. And Canaan was one of the investors in our company. I worked for them on 9-11. So I love the company and I love my employees and I still am super tight with many of them. I was in Paris and, you know, when I was able to kind of piece together, I was having a meeting with my whole European team in Paris, what had happened and we found out, you know, the towers had come down. You know, I'm kind of freaking out a little bit because I had family in New York and I had family in D.C. And my father-in-law was at the Pentagon that day. And so, like, once I find out everyone is alive, mm-hmm. which is good, um, I'm, I've called Izar and I'm like, OK, like I have people and they're all over. And he goes, Joy, he goes, I don't care what it costs. Do whatever is necessary, whatever transportation, whatever they need to do to get them back home safely to their families. Anything is fine. And I'm like, anything, he's like, anything, I don't care. Plane, train, helicopter private car, doesn't matter. I'm like, okay. And he goes, don't you know the CEO at Thor? Now, Thor Technologies was our competitor. They were in the World Trade Center. And uh, I'm like, yes. And he goes, can you find out if all of his people made it out okay? And let him know. He goes, I think we should help them. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, it's a horrible thing. He goes, and I've lived through this, right? I mean, Israelis have, right? right? Sure. And uh, he goes, tell him we will give him free space in our building until they can find a new place. I'm like, in, in our offices. And he's like, yes. I'm like, okay. And, you know, that's a very, it's a kind thing to do for anyone, but to do it for your direct competitor. And we literally were bidding on a huge bid, like a 30 or $40 million bid against them. And we knew this at the time. Um, to me, that said a lot about this man and his character. And, um, you know, to this day, I would quit my job and go back to work for him if he started another company. I can't speak enough to the importance of integrity and character. I, uh, it's a personal subject to me. I went to a school that has a very strict honor code. And, uh, you know, the fact that a leader would say something that, not only made an impression on one of his leaders, you, for the rest of their lives, but that ethos is reflected, I would imagine, in every single thing that organization did to how it negotiated its contracts, how it treated, its, how it treated its employees. You know, that f- from that stems everything. And that's, uh, it's, that's an amazing story. And I can uh, now understand, you know, why you feel so strongly about the company. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, we did, I would say one other thing, like, I think it was a great company. I love the team I had there. I mean, the team there, the team at Cheyenne and my team at Velocitude, 
you know, not saying anything, but anyways, but those are my favorite teams, right? I kind of, the core team of us that led those organizations, right? The founders, as well as the employees that were there, that were for us and with us. It, sometimes you just get it right. You know, everything kind of comes together and it, it makes a huge difference. But the other thing we did, we had um, our development, our software development was done in Israel, but our headquarters was in New Jersey. And we had people from all over the world. We had offices all over the world. And um, we decided because we had um, we had a lot of Israelis, right? So it was very common to hear people speaking in Hebrew, but that became problematic, right? And we had people from 27 different countries. So I said, we were talking about this and we're like, I mean, I'm Native American, Irish, right? Adrian is Cuban. You know, there's like all these people. And so we made a rule. We, we established a culture committee and to take feedback from the various different cultures with 27 different countries. That's a lot of different cultures. We said, you can only speak English or the native language in the country in which you are in, in the hallway. So you can't stand next to someone, you know, in uh, Paramus, New Jersey, speaking Hebrew because maybe they don't speak Hebrew and they have no idea if you're talking about them or to them. And it, it was very interesting because I was expecting that to meet with a lot of opposition. And there were a couple of people who grumbled a little bit in the beginning. But we're like, look, I don't care what you do in the office. If the two of you speak, you know, Hindi and you're in the office together, you can talk in whatever language you want if the door's closed. But if you are, you know, in an open space inside of the company, then you need to speak in the local language or in English. And um, it became such a funny thing that like literally I'd be riding, like Azar and I would be in the car together and we get a call from Israel and they would be on the speakerphone and it would start speaking in Hebrew. And he's like, no, no, speak in English. Joy's in the car with me. <laughs> English. And I'm like, <laughs> and I, I know a little Hebrew, but I am not, I cannot converse at their level sure. um, in Hebrew. But, but to me, I thought that was a really big deal. And I think it made people, it said something about, the leadership of the company saying, hey, we want everyone to be respected and we want everyone to feel welcome here. And, you know, they could have easily done it differently. I mean, we had, at the time we were acquired, I think we had about 275 employees, of which probably 175 were Israeli because our Q&A and our dev were all in Israel, which was probably 100 employees. So it could have easily gone a different way, but it didn't. And you know, I truly loved working with them. Some of the most um, integrity-driven and hardworking people I've ever met in my life. But what fantastic role models who, I mean, you're rather successful yourself, Joy, but I have to imagine that the, the principles the, that you learned from people of such strong character have influenced you personally and professionally ever since you effectively trained underneath them. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So after you've had these two or three amazing kind of runs, did your career path change at all? Or did you keep kind of going into well-funded cybersecurity type B2B companies? Or did was there a shift? So I've always done B2B. I, I like B2B. I'll, I'll tell you why I like B2B. I think B2B is uh, you can identify your customer. You can identify your market. I think it's an easier, they're not as fickle. Large companies are not fickle. It's too expensive to be fickle. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is. In the enterprise business, you can't be fickle. It may take you a little bit longer to make a decision, but you usually stick with that decision. So I think that B2B revenue streams can become more predictable. Um, it's easier to understand your customer and do the right things if you are open-minded. 
Um, however, that said, um, no, not all the companies were venture backed or well funded. You know, I've, I've gone through the, hey, let's bootstrap and can we make payroll this month? And, you know, we did that at Highwall. We did that at Velocity, the company we sold to Akamai. We didn't take a dime of venture or angel money, actually. You know, we kind of came up with a way to put the amount of money we needed to get started in the bank. And we made a decision not to pay ourselves, the founders, um, with the exception of one. We had one who just wasn't in the same financial situation as the rest of us, couldn't afford to um, not have a paycheck. Mm-hmm. So we just dealt with that from an equity perspective. Mm-hmm. But we we structured it in such a way that after we did our first, our first customer was landed, um, which was pretty quick, we were able to pay our core bills. And then we decided we would take all of the profit and reinvest it in hiring more people. So we wouldn't pay ourselves anything for a long period of time, like six, eight months. And then at the time that we began to pay ourselves, we would take only the amount of money that we needed to basically eat. So literally like 1500 bucks a month a piece. But it worked out okay, because in the end, um, you know, we got acquired and we hadn't given up any equity. So that's a big plus, you know, from that perspective. And I've had it where it didn't work out, right? You know, the company ended up getting sold, the assets got sold off, the founders hated each other. And you know, you can... You can always go that way too. I think that degrades that when you things go really badly and the founders can't agree. So this is a lesson from this. Mm-hmm. Then it gets really ugly really fast. And generally there's no winner. So I would say the thing I learned out of going through that is make sure when you start, you put together an operating agreement, a real operating agreement, pay a lawyer to do this, please, please, please. Um, it's worth the money. There's certain things you spend money on. There's other things. I'll tell you the cheapest way possible to do them, but, um, your operating agreement, you need to have an attorney. And in addition to that, you need to decide with your co-founders, how are you going to make decisions when you cannot agree? How are you going to come to a resolution? Do that in writing. As part so of your operating, sorry to interrupt, Joy. As part yeah. of your operating agreement, I mean, I know there's formal like voting mechanisms, but are you talking about just as kind of a side agreement? Is look, this is how yes. okay, and, and that's yeah. interesting. And so you basically tell us a little bit about what that document looked like, what it was called, and what it contained. So for me, I think the reality is we we decided like, hey, if we if you're going to have equal stakes in the company. Mm-hmm. There has to be an arbitrator or there has to be a way to come to a decision, right? Um, if you can't, if you literally cannot come to an impasse. So one of the things we did was just, okay, I've done it where it said, okay, if we can't come to a resolution on an issue within 48 hours, which sounds like a really narrow window, but in a startup, it's an eternity. So if we cannot come to a resolution in 48 hours, then we'll have an independent third party make the cast the deciding vote. And was that a board member or was it a predefined person or was there a mechanism for determining the third party? Like in, you know, I've done, it, I've done it both ways. Okay. I've done it both ways. So I've done it where I had like the lawyer be the person. Yep. Right. I've done it where, and, and this is the way I think it works best. If you can find someone to act as a mentor to your company that has been in the space before, whether they're a board member, if you want to give them a board seat, you want to give them a couple of percentage of points of equity or whatever you want to do it right to have them have a vested interest make that person, you know, the person, but it can't be one of your, one of you guys' best friends. Yeah. Right. It's gotta be an objective third party. <laughs> right. And because it, it's tough. I mean, and you know, when, when you get together in the beginning, you love each other and everything's awesome. And 
we're going to build this massive company and, you know, conquer the world. And then it's reality. Yeah, people, right? like, like you were saying, I think you had a team of, what did you say, 16 people? Was it that many? And Yeah, at Cheyenne originally, yeah. And, well, and, and one of them needed to be paid more in cash, right? Or something like that? Or uh, Oh, no, it's a lot of dudes. There were only four of us. But yeah, we had to pay one in cash, yeah. So, so, so life... I mean, people have different, you know, extenuating circumstances in their life and different pressures at, in, at home and health. And I mean, just things happen. Well, all the rest of us had owned businesses before, right? He, he hadn't. Right. It's a, it's a, I just think it's a different expectation. And, you know, some people can live on less money, right? Depends on what your expenses are. Some people have more money in the bank. And, you know, but we kind of made that decision. And it, it was, it was a fair decision. No one, no one complained. No one was upset about it. You just understood it, and and I don't, and actually after the very beginning, I don't think any of us even thought about it. But my point is really, you know, when you're talking about in the beginning, everybody loves each other, and then you know, et cetera. I mean, life situations change, pressures change, people's you know burnout ratio changes. I mean, that's you know, I, you know, you mentioned something interesting about investing in the legal document, probably as a result of my early career training as a uh, paralegal at a couple of really good law firms. I'm very conservative when it comes to and uh, conservative on the safe side of, mm -hmm. us, of using law firms. I, I personally think that you're better off over investing in quality legal counsel for more things than you think you should when you and pushing yourself to afford it to save yourself a big time pains later, especially if you've got a, a business savvy lawyer. Who, who you really rely on is kind of your outside general counsel until you can have your own inside general counsel. You yeah, I, I do. So I think that, um, and it, you know, it's funny. If you don't get the legal part and the legal structure of your company right, right, if you don't create the right operating agreement, those kind of things, it will bite you. And you'll one of two things will happen. You'll either have to pay to have it all redone or often much worse than that, you put yourself in a situation where you won't be able to raise capital if you need it. I mean, for like paying, I mean, for even simple things like paying people finders fees and stuff, right. they have no idea how bad it can screw up their cap table. Yeah, what you don't know, you don't know. And, you know, what's important, I think, is if you, when you get an attorney, you know, you got to have somebody you have a good personal relationship with whose business, you know, you need somebody who's a very pragmatic attorney. There are plenty of attorneys out there that will talk to you as long as you want to talk. Sure. And it'll just, the, the meter keeps running. But uh, a really good a really good find somebody part. who's done it before. If you don't know anyone, right? Find someone, you know, call uh, go to go to a couple of meetups, right? And find a company that's been successful, a startup that's been successful, ask them who their lawyer is. Go ask. Right? I mean, get a get a referral from someone. I mean, I've had guys, it's not super expensive. I mean, everybody's like, "Oh, it's going to cost me like $50,000." No, it does not cost that much money, right? The reality is uh, it's not crazy expensive, but the small amount of money you will spend on that is well worth it for that and for your IP lawyer. And if you have proprietary IP, please pay someone to help you understand how to protect that. And that doesn't necessarily mean a patent, right? If you, if you have something that isn't patented or can't be patented, although a lot of things can, then creating the right trade secret policy and who is allowed to have access to that, what information you get dis gets disclosed to, which employees. Those kind of things are really important. It not only matters with your employees and protecting your IP internally, but when you're at the point you're being acquired, right, when and how you disclose information, you can use that trade secret policy to your advantage. We certainly did at acquisition with Akamai for Velocitude. 
because we didn't have a patent, but we had a trade secret policy. And we basically said, hey, here's the deal. We're not going to disclose the information, our trade secret policy until we have an agreement in place that unless there's a problem that's unforeseen in all the other investigations you've done, we have a deal and we have that number already agreed to. And it made a sizable difference (laughs) in the exit price. So paying a little bit up front can save you hundreds of thousands or millions in the end. So we both agree that it's very important to have a good legal counsel uh, with a lot of experience and is pragmatic. (laughs) You've talked a lot so far about, you know, people. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how do you, I I think the scariest thing a small company can do is hire somebody. It's such an (laughs) inefficient process, uh, especially in a startup because you're moving so fast you know, my father worked for large corporations, and they actually recruit really well. The, the amount of time they spent getting to know potential candidates once they shortlisted and they would, you know, fly in the, the spouse and go to dinner and really spend time with them before they brought somebody in, it was imp- I saw it from the corporate side growing up, and it's impressive. In the startup, things move so fast, but if you make a mistake – the potential to disrupt culture or distract the organization is massive. I'm curious what lessons you learned along the way about how to do it right and how to be better at it. Because, look, all a service business is is a collection of people and talent is what separates one good organization from another. I'm a big believer in people will tell you the references they want you to see, right? I, I like hiring people that are known entities. So if I can hire a re- repeat hire, then that's great. But that's not always possible. And I think you also need to bring new blood in, right? Like having the same crew indefinitely kind of makes you blind to certain things. So I don't, I don't think that's always a good thing either. To me, your qualifications are one thing you can easily kind of verify that I think that I usually go with my gut in the end, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you verify the normal things that are out there. I also kind of like the try before you buy scenario from, from both sides. So if someone is open to it, not everybody is, a lot of times like, hey, let's come on as a contractor first, or I'll hire you as a consultant. And, you know, let's see how that works for a 1099 for, you know, 60 days or something, 60 days. And let's see if we, if you like it here, right. And, or, and if we like you, and a lot of times if it's somebody coming from a big company into a small company, I don't think they understand. And I will even try to caution them like you do understand that big resource pool you have over there, all that infrastructure, it does not exist here, right? Like you are it, right? If the toilet needs cleaning, there's no person coming in to do that. Probably you probably gonna have to do that yourself. Right. Right. Um, and that's, that's kind of a culture shock. People was like, Oh, I have this. Like, no, that's not really how it works. Like we'll give you the basic tools to function from a business perspective, but we don't have that extra layer, those fluffy layers. They don't exist here. We can't afford them. And, some people can make that work and other people can't. And even if they can, I mean, it's the other thing I've experienced, because I, I agree with you completely about the date before you get married concept. You know, even if they have, or even if they've been in another startup, they haven't been in your startup. Right. <laughs> and that, and the fact that they may not fit doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with them. It's no. It might just mean they'd be better they'd be happier and better off elsewhere. And you give you get, the other thing is once you lock in, it's very painful for, to both parties to have to unwind a permanent hire. Mm-hmm. Unwinding, 
you know, there's lots of reasons things don't work out and, and that's okay. But when you've been permanently hired, unwinding that, I've seen it where it can be very painful to both sides, whereas the, the arrangement that you're talking about gives both parties flexibility and, you know, it's, it's, it's less complicated when it's time to unwind it. And it gives the gives uh, particularly the person that came there more flexibility when they move forward. It's actually to their advantage, although they may not feel that way when they're being recruited if that concept's thrown out. Well, you know, the, the reality is I think that, I think there's that. I also, so I, I will also call references they don't give me. So I'll go like, okay, I'm going to find some other people who know this person. And I'm just going to call somebody randomly and say like, tell me about them. And I, it's not because I don't trust who you told me. The reality is I want to know more about how do you work I can verify whether you're competent or not, right. right? That we can do. But that doesn't mean you're going to be happy here or we'd be happy with you and vice versa. And I don't want someone to work there that's miserable. You know, I think you can, for most skills, you can verify. When it comes to developers, that's a little harder. But we kind of developed a technique of giving three problems to be solved, right, to someone and seeing what they came back with, right? So you can take a look at the code. You can take a look at the things. So you can take a look at the architecture document. I've had some people say, well, hey, I'm not going to do that, you know, until you hire me. And I'm like, okay, then you're not going to work here. You know, that that's fine. I'm not going to tell you you have to do it. I'm not giving you a problem we're solving inside our company. I'm not that naive, right? That's not what we're giving you. We're giving you another problem. We want to see, you know, hey, what are your math skills? Do you have the ability to, you know, understand algorithms? You know, is the code that you write clean? It's it's those kind of things. It's like the CTO needs to know if you will be a good fit on that development team. Because if you're not, you're going to be miserable and the rest of the team will be miserable. And you're right. It has nothing to do with whether that person is a good hire for some company. They might just not be a good hire for your company. What do you do to keep them there and make sure they're growing? I mean, you went from zero to 500 plus with the first in. I mean, uh, how do you keep that relationship healthy and people growing? And, you know, as you start to get larger, how do you keep it from, how do you keep the organization from bureaucratizing? So some people don't agree with this, but this is kind of, this was our methodology there. So we made everyone, every employee had to go to take some sort of professional development course every quarter. Um, well, was it funded by the organization? Or Yes. Wow. No, we paid for it. That's we huge. Paid for it. We believed that we're investing in our people and we want our people to grow because that's the only way the organization can grow. I believe that still today. It's a bit more expensive today. So we actually negotiated a, a global contract with AMA. Right. So then it wasn't as crazy as most people think it is. Mm -hmm. So you could pick any AMA course you wanted to take and, and go through that or developers, you know, you can negotiate the same kind of deals with like SANS if you have on the security or the developer side, and you can get a much better corporate package if you've got that many employees. But I don't really care if you're a small startup, it could be having them go to continuing education course in their local community. It could be you paying for an online course from Udemy. I, I don't really care. And giving them the time to do it. That's the other thing, right? So that they don't feel like, oh, I am having to sacrifice my own personal time to do this. If they want to do that and grow and do other things, then awesome. But you as a, as a company need to say like, hey, your growth is important to us. So we want you to do these things. I found that really kind of amazing um, because people understand you're investing in them. I'm also a big believer in you're not going to keep everybody forever. It's not human nature. It's certainly not nature in our society or in the technology arena today. The average employee stays for two years. 
<laughs> so you need to understand that. There'll be some that will stay and stick it out to the end. But your goal should be to say, like, I want that employee to be the best employee for me they can in that two-year period. And I want when they leave them to say, this was an awesome experience. Because maybe I want them to come back to me in my next company. Or maybe I want them to come back here. You know, if I'm still around five years from now, and maybe they've gone out and done something else, and now they become in as an executive in the company. So to me, it's like, I always tell my employees when we're looking at goals, right? I say, tell me what are your top three professional goals and your top three personal goals. And my job is to help you achieve those. And I don't care if they're here in this organization or they're somewhere else. It doesn't really matter. Because if I can help you do that, then you'll still be an awesome employee for me while you're here. And when you go on to do your next great thing, then to me, I'm super happy about that. My greatest accomplishment at CA, I actually was responsible for several billion dollars in revenue while I was there. My greatest accomplishment is to this day, I still hold a record for having the highest number of people who worked under me promoted into positions of higher authority in that company. That's the greatest accomplishment. It's all about the people. And I could have never done what I did if it weren't for those people. It wasn't me. It's the whole team. Well, it's clear that between the admiration you had for the leader at the one company uh, who helped on 9-11 and some other comments that you made that character and personal and career development and people matter a lot to you. And I can see why you would be fantastic in sales and marketing and also in talent development. But I, I know you, we've, we've known each other for a couple of years now and we're getting to know each other even more, but Joy, I know you, you're a very uh, achievement driven person. I imagine that there, you're also is as much as you are in development, I would imagine you have very high standards and could be fairly demanding too. How do you balance those? I mean, is my read fair? <laughs> no, it's completely fair. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I just definitely am a demanding person. But I, I'll tell you, this is the thing. I believe in high reward for high effort. You know, I, I know not everyone is going to be me and that's okay. But um, I think that A players attract A players and B players attract C players. So if you can get A players, if you're an A player and you can hire all A players for your initial core hires, then you are going to be much more likely to get more A players. If you hire B players, I would argue most of the players you get are going to be C players and you're probably not going to be very successful. Well, as you know, from as an investor, which we'll switch gears to in a minute, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure you would tell me when we get into our in investor segment that you'll take a B idea with an A team over an A idea with a B team any day. Well, sure. I mean, like Velocity, we weren't the first company out there, but we were the first one to get acquired. We did something very different and we were able to observe what other people were doing wrong. Right. So first to market doesn't mean that, you know, you, that you're the best company. And it might mean first to fail. <laughs> right. I mean, and the reality is, I mean, come on, there's a ton of companies out there doing the same thing. Right. Like Uber and Lyft is an example, right? Because this is one that's near and dear to my heart because I told somebody they were, you know, not very smart yesterday. Um, <laughs> so I've met, I met both Travis and Logan. I've met both CEOs or Travis, the former CEO. There's a huge difference in how those companies are run. Even if you talk to drivers who work for both companies, right, which you can do, and most of them do, ask which company they like the best because it's not Uber. Ask why. Is it because they make tons more money working for Lyft? Nope, they make a little bit more money, but not much. It's because of how they're treated. And it's because of the direction that comes from the top down or doesn't come at all in the case of Uber. So, you know, you can, 
you can look at it that way and go like, okay, you know, do I want to get the right people? And it takes a little bit more time. It takes a little bit more effort and it may take more convincing, you know, because they've got to believe in you and your idea. But I can tell you, like, once you've done that and once you know who some of those people are, like Martin Flack, who's my CTO at Velocitude, is another one of those people. I mean, Martin could call me up and go like, hey, Joy, I was thinking about opening up a donut shop. You want to come do it with me? I'd be like, okay. Not because I like donuts, but because I trust him. I know what his work ethic is like. I know who he's willing to work with and not. And he knows the same thing about me. So, yeah, highly demanding, very hardworking. But I believe if you put forth the effort, I will do everything I can to make sure you are well taken care of. So I will fight just as hard for you. And uh, I have for my employees before in big companies where people I thought were getting a raw deal. And I've literally walked in and said, hey, either you take care of this or I quit. I don't care. And I will do that because to me, that's my job. It's a fine line you walk, even as the CEO of a company, right? You have a, a level of accountability to your investors and to your board, but you also have the same level of accountability to your employees. So you have to push back on your board when they're wrong. <laughs> and you have to push back on your employees when they're wrong, right? And that's why that open communication, I think, is so important. But sometimes the board wants things that aren't the right thing for the company. And it's your job to tell them no. And employees respect you for that. They, employees are, are very smart people. And they will, if they see people standing up for them, they recognize that and they appreciate that. And the ones that have integrity, which are the ones hopefully you hired, they'll be loyal because of that. Let's close out the kind of first half of our conversation, which is about, you know, being an entrepreneur with uh, a raising capital. Because mm-hmm. um, later we're going to talk about, you know, this from the investor standpoint. Any advice, uh, we could we could spend a whole show on this, and we may at some <laughs> point, but, you know, advice to startups, maybe some, without going into super detail, but three or four critical points in the capital raising process, assuming that this is a, you know, kind of a seed stage fun, uh, opportunity, a seed stage company, some thoughts on raising capital for that, that, that type of uh, maturity of a company. Um, yeah, so I'll say a couple of things. I, I see this mistake made a lot of times, sometimes when you're filling out your team, right? So angels, we're, if we're talking about angels, right? So if, you, if you're not asking your parents or your friends and family, right? And you're, you're asking someone who's in this is an investment, a true investment, right? So an angel investor um, or a seed fund or whoever you're talking to, right? They're going to look at your team and part of the decision is going to be based on who's on your team. If you're not the right person to lead the organization, if you're the CEO and you're the wrong person, maybe you should be the chief strategy officer. Maybe you're the technical person. It should be the CTO, not the CEO, right? They're going to want that changed out. So understand that equity and ownership have nothing to do with title. So you can be the CTO and own 80% of your company, right? It has nothing to do with title. I, it's interesting you should say that. I'm, I'm discussing an engagement with a potential client. And the guy that founded the company has made is 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 a CTO, and he's hired in the CEO, and he's looking for a COO. And I thought it was really smart of him. Uh, I was impressed that he realized what his role should be, and mm-hmm. he's secure enough to know that you know, okay, I know how the shares are getting allocated here. I thought it was smart because because it it, it, it it I think it's I think with the point that you're hitting on not only for investors but it's really important how investors see it is you really need to be explained to the investors and even your own internal organization you know who's on what seat on the bus and what's their role i mean if you can't if you can't explain that 
the team is as important as the business concept. It, it, it is. I mean, and you're, the team is actually, I think the team is more important. You're investing, in the, you're investing in the team, aren't you? I mean, basically. I mean, you can take a good team and give them a pretty crappy product and they'll still be successful, right? If, if they can get their, wrap their head around them and believing that the product can be successful. But I think that, you know, it shows maturity on behalf, like emotional maturity on behalf of the founders. And you can still be the board chair for that matter. Be the CTO, be the chairman of the board. It doesn't, that doesn't really matter. But you want to get the right players in the right roles. So know your weaknesses and hire to fill your weaknesses. You don't need somebody who thinks like you. You already think like yourself. You need someone who can do the things that you're either not good at or cannot do. And then I think that the reality is thinking ahead. So I would say a lot of people think about how do I keep the doors open today? And they're not thinking about where the company is going to go downstream. So most founders who raise a C round or a high B round, end up with 5% of their company at exit. So people are probably freaking out right now, particularly in Florida, because people here do not understand VC math. Well, the funny thing is, is I can imagine that there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of entrepreneurs listening now who are at the friends and family round, and they're freaking out, thinking they're you know getting ready to have less than 75% of the company when they go to their C <laughs> round. So, yes. But, it's, but you, just, you should do with the reverse math, right? So you can reverse the formula back out and say like, okay, you know, how much am I going to, do I think I'm going to need to raise long-term? Am I going to need to raise, you know, 20 million, 50 million, a hundred million, like to get to where I need to go. And how much am I going to have to give up in a, an A, B and C round, right? Because it, the pie keeps getting thinner and thinner. And you just want to make sure that you're putting yourself in a situation where you'll be able to make it to the end, Right. Or as, you know, as Sam Zell, the famous real estate investor, you know, Sam, you know, when the real estate crisis happened, not in 2008, which most people remember, but the one back in the late 80s, early 90s, essentially got recapitalized by, I forget which, you know, couple of funds. And he he was smart enough to realize that, well, what was more important, owning 100% of an empire now worth zero or owning 20% of an empire worth, you know, a couple billion dollars. And it was pretty obvious what the answer was. Right. I think the other thing that I would say is, Putting together a board or an advisory board gives, if you can convince the right people and it looks like you've outfitted your team really well in that capacity, that gives angel investors a, a sense of comfort for a couple of different reasons saying, okay, like this person has kind of thought this through. They do understand that they can't do it alone and they need some people who have expertise. We've, we did that at Velocitude with the people that we put on our board. We did it. We had an accountant on our board and we had a, a person who had a private equity M&A guy on our board. In addition to that, we outfitted our board with former CIOs, CEOs of big public companies um, or people who had the right contacts to help us make entree into them as customers, not to raise capital, right. but to get to actual Strate- customers. Strategic board members. Yep. And, and we gave up 10% of our company on day one. Now, some people would go like, that's a really bad idea. I would think that's a really smart idea. So my company has no value on day one, literally no value at all. Your company really doesn't have any value until you have customers, to be honest. So if you're raising capital prior to having customers, you need to understand that. But you also don't want to get into one of these deals. And I see these a lot here. And it's really sad where somebody says, I'll give you X. So maybe it's I've seen as low as 25,000 and I've seen as much as 100,000. But I want 40 percent of your company and 10 percent in warrants. Well, you're not going to raise any more money after that. So hopefully whatever they gave you is all you need. And 
if people don't understand when they're getting ready to raise money, how that works, you need to go find someone, not that you're asking for money from, but someone who's actually raised money to walk you through that process. Well, again, this is exactly why you need to have good counsel when you do the, when you go raise uh, uh, capital. It's very technical. I mean, Brad Feld wrote a good book a couple years ago about, and I thought it was, it was very good. And it goes pretty deep into the weeds on drag along rights and some other technicalities. And, and what I learned from it, because I'm not a very technical person was, okay, all the, this is exactly why I need really skilled counsel because it is intricate. It is detailed. And I think what a lot of uh, founders don't realize, look, you can, if, 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 if you want to, basically send signals to the other side that you want to have, uh, you know, a huge percentage of the shares, you know, eventually you can negotiate that. You can still lose control of the company. Uh, There there are structural features that, you know, can take that away. So you got to, you need someone on your team who can understand, who can explain those intricacies to you so that you maintain control and, uh, and that your objectives are really, met and sometimes those aren't objectives aren't what you initially feel they are right and and yeah i mean it will change over time right things about your company will change over time as well i have a buddy of mine out in uh, california he was removed from the ceo role in the company and uh by the board but he's still the co-chair of the board now it was tough for him because it's personal right and you don't really like that and it was his baby he came up with the idea built the company, raised the money, all these things, right? But in the end, he still has his equity in the company. So he's gone on to do something else, right? He's in another business now, but he still has his equity and he is still the co-chair. And when that company gets sold and it will get sold, he'll retain the capital, right? That he would have had even if he were the CEO. It's just hard. I mean, as entrepreneurs, you know, most entrepreneurs have borderline personality. So it's kind of a, uh, which is means that, you know, We're almost bipolar, to be honest. So you've got super high highs and super low lows, right? And we're our own worst enemy on some days because we just, you know, failure is just defeating to us. You know, like you might go stay in bed for three days and not get out of bed. You just kind of can't figure it out, right? To get through it. But, you know, in the end, you know, he kind of came around and, you know, he's very happy now and he gets it, right? But it's hard when it's something you work so hard for to kind of see those things happen. And um, even when you sell a company, you know, I, I kind of learned this because one of the hardest things for me when we sold Cheyenne was watching CA destroy this company. And I I saw us have 80% market share and then want to change how we did things a year in and watch that number drop to like 60% in two months. You know, it's, it's very hard to watch your baby get killed, right? Right. But then I, I kind of learned over time, right? I mean, I've done this enough times. I've been, I've, been, I've been bought nine times now, right? So you just have to let it go. And you have to make peace with that, that once you sign that paper, it's not yours anymore. And, and you don't have any say-so, right? You have only the amount of say-so that this new organization is going to give you, which is probably only a small amount. And it's interesting to watch people who go through it for the first time. They have such a hard time with that. And I'm like, I just make peace with it coming in, knowing that that's the case. And I structure my agreement in the company, right? Because we all have employment agreements, even in our own companies, so that I can, you know, separate those two things. Joy, how many startups have you been a part of? 
that I was a founder or an equity holder in, well, um, yeah. aside yeah. from investing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not as an investor. You, you on the we're, we're in our fifteen. 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 And yeah. How many exits? Um, we've had uh, eleven exits. And uh, two or three crashes. A couple of really ugly things, and I, I still own uh, I still own three today. So yes. <laughs> so as, as we close out the joy as an entrepreneur segment, any final lessons, wisdom you want to share to the entrepreneurs before we switch to the investor kind of? Uh... Get the right co-founders. It's the most important thing. You know, if you're not technical and you're founding a company, find someone who is technical who'll help you vet that person from a technical skill set. But make sure that you can coexist with that person, that you have the same values, right? You won't always agree. That's okay. But that you have the same values. You know, if you both act with integrity, if you both do these things, right, that that you look at things the same way from a company value and what your mission is. If you're the technical side and you're looking for the sales side, do the exact same thing. Find somebody who you think is a, that you know is a rock star running sales and marketing organization, you know, and get them to help you find the sales, the sales and marketing side, right? The, the front facing person for the company. And, you know, once the, the two of you have kind of come together, maybe there's three of you, depending on, you know, what it is that you're going to do. Maybe there's a, a physical component of what you're doing. You need a design person who's in there. Um, make sure that you can all live together because this is going to be your life. You're going to spend as much time, probably more time with these people for the duration of this company, at least for the first couple of years, than you will with your family. If you had to weight uh, evaluation of talent, uh, shared values, and ability to work with each other in putting together that founding team, is it weighted more toward one than the other, or is it pretty, it's equal parts? I believe it kind of, you know, it's funny. In my opinion, you've got to be talented because you can't, you know, you've got to have the, the, the you skills. You can't succeed without it, period. Right. But... The other thing is, if you're just talented and you can't get along, and I've seen this a lot, right, where two highly talented people kill each other. So there has to be that part where you say, like, hey, you know, we understand each other and we're going to work together. And then if you put that agreement in place, like saying, hey, like, if when we don't agree, you know, we'll, 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 we've got a way to work this out. And the reason I like to do that up front is because there's emotion involved later, Right. And everybody wants to be right. And, you know, you think you're right. And so it's like, hey, maybe I think I'm right. But we agreed when we both were of sound mind that hmm. this is how we would work through this. So now we have this agreement. So you can point back to the agreement. So you're not calling that person out. You're saying like, hey, we're clearly not going to come to an agreement here. This is how we decided we would handle situations like this. And I think that works really effectively because, you know, everybody, like I said, it's not always going to be good. But it'll give you a reference point to move back to, and you'll know that you both agreed to that in good faith in the beginning. Doesn't this, because I see this a lot, and I imagine you've seen it even more, doesn't this therefore beg caution when you're really first starting a company and you have this great idea, but you don't have the guy to develop it? And then you go find a guy with technical skills and say, oh, oh. Okay, okay, I'll give you half the company if you do this. And, and, and then you know, six months later, you decide that it was a crappy product, you don't get along, and, you know, now, but you've given away 50% 50 of the company. I see Horrible. this so awful, but it's so natural because people are like, well, I can't pay you, fine, give me half the company. What's your advice to somebody with a, a good idea, but they don't have the resources to get it done, but you know they should not give away that much of the company that early? How does it get um, done? 
there's a couple of ways, I guess. I don't like outsourcing. I, I don't believe in outsourcing your technical development. There are exceptions, but I really don't. And, I'll, and, and the reason why is it makes it really hard to get funded later because I can tell you straight up, VCs are not going to give you money. If you don't have a technical person who's going to bleed beside you. Right. They're not. Okay. And, and rightfully so, because your chances of success are really, really low. The, the other thing that people don't think about is if you outsource your development, who's going to maintain it? So you, you have this guy, right? And you, you gave him something. He wrote the code and he gives it back to you. Now what happens? Code doesn't, it doesn't stay perfect. It's not how it works. So that it, there's some constant care and feeding that goes on, plus building out your platform, right? Like whatever product it is, you're going to want to make enhancements to that based on the feedback that comes from customers, right? You're going to, you're going to adapt it to fit what your customers want as you grow. You have to have staff to do that. You can't continue to outsource that because the time frame doesn't work, right? You have technical issues, support problems with your product. Who's going to handle that? Someone has to do it. And if you go and give 50% of your company away <laughs> and you don't get along, well, your company is now over, right? <laughs> because you're not going to get anybody else to come in and, and clean that up. So, so one of the one way I think you can do it, to your point, if you've gone through the, this is my feeling, sure. if you've gone through the process of having somebody help you vet the person, they say, yep, they have the technical chops to do it. You believe you can get along with this person. You know, so you went to a bunch of tech meetups and you found somebody and, you know, you kind of pitched your concept to them and like, yeah, I could build that. And you had somebody vet them and you're now you're in. Right. I would say, hey, look, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, we're the right fit for each other. So I'm unwilling to give you 50 percent of the company on day one. But here's what I'll do. Let's create a plan where there are milestones that we meet. And you know what? Each, you know, each month, quarter, whatever. Right. I'll give you more equity, provided we're still moving down this path. Let's agree to that. It's like milestone vesting. Yeah. And, and you know, and honestly, six months in, you're probably going to know if this is the right person or not. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, then you'd be like, hey, great. You know, let's go do that. But but then it's like most developers, too, if you're just kind of finding someone, they're probably, unless they just happen to not be working, they're probably not going to end up being full time initially anyway. They've got other projects they're working on. They're doing other things. This is a way to kind of ease into it, but maybe they really believe in what you're doing. I have seen it where you can outsource to companies that specifically, it's almost like a startup team for hire is the best way I know to describe it. So there's there's a few companies like that. And then they, they charge an ongoing maintenance fee. Mm -hmm. And they agree to maintain your code and the things that they're going to do. And you have an agreed to set of terms. I think that can work for a while. Um, one of them I know does a transition to your team once you bring a person on board. So I think sometimes those can work, but that, again, you're going to have to have some money up front. I don't think development's as expensive as most people think it is. But the thing that your CTO, if they're a good CTO, will do in addition to maybe developing your product, or maybe they're your VP of engineering and not your CTO, right? Mm -hmm. They'll help build out the team over time. So the other thing I would look for in that person is someone who's actually managed other people before. I think that's critical. They don't have to have managed a bunch of people. And if they haven't managed people, they have, they've managed projects for a larger client. Because that'll tell you that if they've done that successfully, they understand how to negotiate. They understand how to handle the give and take. And they know that every day is not going to be perfect. And it's not going to always be just about them. And that's pretty important as you're building out a technology company. Let's switch gears a little bit. What is New Market Partners and how did it come about? So New Market Partners, I actually founded after we sold business players to NetTegrity. 
And I was kind of saying like, oh, you know, what do I want to go do next? And so I started working with startups and advising startups. So I thought I should probably form a company if I'm going to get paid, right? And um, doing any kind of consulting. And it eventually became um, also the fund that I have for doing investment. But we do everything from interim, you know, CEO, CTOs, COO roles, things like that. And a lot of advisory services where startups kind of get stuck, right? Whether it's in their go-to-market strategy or whether it is in um, turnarounds. I've been brought in by the private equity guys and the VC guys to do that. I've done a lot of M&A. In addition to being bought nine times, I actually bought 17 companies for, for previous companies that I work for as well. So I kind of created a formula for doing that. So a lot of times the VCs will have us do due diligence and help with things like that. But it really is a, a services firm, not a product firm. So there's no product associated with it and the fund. And is the fund a third-party fund that you manage or is it your own? No, it's mine. It's, it's mine. Okay. And that, which, <laughs> which is a heck of a lot easier to manage. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk. Uh, we, we've learned a lot about you uh, as an entrepreneur and we could have talked for another hour. But let's talk about Joy as, as the investor. Okay, I've done well in business, and I'm thinking that I might want to dabble in startups or choose it as part of my allocation to alternative investments. First of all, good idea or bad? Well, I mean, I I, I guess I have to say it's a good idea, right, because I've done it. So I guess I have to say it's a good idea. <laughs> but is it a good idea because you actually have experience doing it, whereas I might just have money, or is it a good decision? I think every every investment that we make, every alternative investment that we make, actually all investments have risk. Mm-hmm. But certainly when you start looking at alternative types of investments, there's a, there's a risk associated with it, right? It's not it's it's not a situation where you can kind of look at it and go like, yeah, everything's all perfect. Cuz that's just not kind of how things work. So I think it's probably as safe as any of those investments, which I would argue none of them are safe at all. So, to your point, I think I personally have learned I invest in things I know, and I do not invest in things I do not know. That's me. And I think part of the the challenge is that I have, which is one of the reasons I don't like B2C, right? So I generally don't invest in B2C either, because I can't bring any value to that, in in my opinion, right? Well, you stick to your needing. I mean, it's it's basically- Well, I don't want to be just the money person, right? Right. So everybody's different. I have a buddy who's an angel investor, and we've co-invested and stuff in, in different things. And um, his viewpoint is I write the check and it's like playing roulette. Okay. Like I'm, I, I make some assumptions up front. I look through some things, but once I'm in, I, I write my check and I walk away and I won't ask, you know, for anything really, unless they ask me for something. He happens to be a great negative cash flow guy, by the way, though. So if somebody's looking for someone who has expertise in that space, he's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I don't look at it that way. So if I were doing that, then it's no different than putting money in, you know, a stock fund. Right. It's the same kind of thing. Right. I, I put my money in and I go away. I'm not as Except interested there's in that. Left analy- there's less analytics. I mean, it really, yeah. that kind of philosophy <laughs> is very much, I think you'd be just as well off going to Vegas. Oh, uh, probably. I, and I don't, I, I'm not a big gambler. So I, I'm like, not in, not in, not in Las Vegas. Like mm-hmm. I kind of walk in with like, Hey, I've got this much money and you, you know, what, you have what I call an entertainment fee. You, you'll say, yeah. well, I'll play for $200 tonight when it's over. I'm going to the room. Right. <laughs> So if I win, fantastic. If I lose, so what? Right. Right. Kind of like going out to the theater. Exactly. The same kind of viewpoint. But I think that, you know, angels, I kind of look at it and say the best methodology would be to say five to 10% 
of your asset allocation across 20 to 40 companies. You have to think about it that way. If you're if you're an angel investor and you're like, I like this company, I think they're awesome. I'm going to give them. I've got let's say you've got fifty thousand dollars to play with, even ten thousand. Let's just go with. I, I've got ten thousand dollars that I can invest in startups. Do not give all ten thousand dollars to one company because you need follow-on capital, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know, also like divide it up. If you got ten thousand, a thousand dollars to ten companies is a better chance of winning than ten thousand to one because eight of them are not going to win. So you need one or two of them to win. If you if you get so lucky that you had 10 out of 10 win, you should go to Vegas and put like all the money on double zero. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, because that just never it just never happens. But it, it's just like your investment advisor would tell you in your stock portfolio, right? He would go, don't put all your money in oil and gas, right? Spread your money across multiple opportunities. You would do the same thing with startups. Now, if you like tech, you could put it in a bunch of different tech companies. I personally like it if I can see some synergy in the companies where if that happens and I say, oh, the same customer set is shared by these three companies and I like all three, then if I make an investment, it makes it easier for me to help them. And I can say like, hey, let me introduce you guys. You have a, a like customer base. And that's, it's a VC tactic. VCs do that a lot. So it's not a, a, a new tactic, but it's helpful to be able to kind of use your network to assist these companies with things besides just capital, because just writing a check still doesn't get you customers. And in the end, the only way you grow and the only way you succeed and have, whether it's an IPO or an acquisition, is to get customers. So you're saying that a couple of things to increase your odds of success are diversification of your portfolio, if however much you to allocate to all this, you know, startups have a diversified portfolio, don't put all of it into one. And then the second thing you're basically saying is, try to invest where you might have some domain expertise and avoid that which you don't know anything about. You're completely relying on someone else's judgment unless they're an amazing expert themselves. I mean, that's my, my, my personal belief. Everybody can do whatever they like, but I think then you can help uh, ensure your chances of success if you, have, if you have some domain expertise. And domain expertise doesn't have to be Maybe it's not that you're, maybe if you're investing in tech and you're not a tech person, so you don't have that expertise. Maybe you came um, from a finance background, so you understand the financial market. So maybe you look at a financial tech company, like a fintech company, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe you say like, hey, um, you, don't, you don't have the money to hire a CFO now or a controller. I can help you by doing the review of, you know, your financial documents on a, you know, a, a, a semi-monthly, quarterly basis or semi-annually, right? I could help with that. You know, maybe you have a legal background, so you could help with something in that space. Maybe you're working at a manufacturing, so it's a company that's building a product that even though it's in tech, there's a tangible component to it, and you could assist them with how they handle their tooling and things like that for manufacturing and design. But it'd be something where you can actually kind of look at the company and go, are they doing things the right way or not? That's kind of the, the little litmus test there. Are angel groups a good place for... Uh... You know, someone who wants to start getting involved in this, you know, sector, is that a good place to go and kind of learn more about being an investor or are they better off, you know, following their buddies into a couple of deals? What are your thoughts on angel groups? Mm. Depends on the angel group. It, it, it does. I, you know, I personally not had a good experience with angel groups. Um, <laughs> and, and I guess it's different because it depends on the, how the group is structured. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're doing. So there are some groups. There's groups, say, like um, 
in South Florida, there's groups like Startup Angels, right? Mm -hmm. And so Startup Angels, they're not a fund. They're just a group of people who come together to look at deals. Fine. Perfectly fine, right? I have a problem with angel funds who want to carry to watch your money because I don't need an investor who knows no more about investing than me to tell me what to do with my money. That's my opinion. So I, I don't like those type of organizations. What, just um, real quickly, though, because uh, I understand your yeah. viewpoint. What if what if it's not your typical two and twenty, but there's something? Uh, is an administrative fee okay to cover the overhead of you know the analytics and the reporting and all that? Is there, are there any fees that are okay? Is Maybe. There, right. Okay. I, I think so. I don't have a problem paying for analytics and software and things like that, right? Yeah, and administrative support and that kind of stuff. Yeah, if you think you're getting a value out of it, I, you know, I've seen some that are really good. Um, I would say the Oregon Angel Capital Group is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to like, look at some, things are good. I, I don't want to call anybody out in Florida to say they're not good. Sure. <laughs> but I, there's certainly organizations that are that have funds, so to speak, here that I don't think represent themselves correctly. And so I would be cautious if I were an investor just starting out in how you look at that. So I would say to an investor, if you have not done anything and you're looking at whether or not I participate in a fund or not, go to a couple of meetings, see how the meetings are run, talk to the people, find out how many investments the people in those groups have actually made. Have they seen a return? Have they seen a loss? Do they invest in local companies, right? Do they invest in the space that you want to invest in? There's some questions you should ask. The other thing that I think is helpful Go on LinkedIn. If you're a business person, have money to invest. Go on LinkedIn. Look for someone in your community that has Angel on their profile or maybe two or three of them and ask them to have a cup of coffee and sit down and have that conversation with them. How'd you get started? How, how many, you know, how many companies have you invested in? Do you know anything about these guys that I'm considering engaging with? Is it good? Is it bad? And take that feedback from three or four different people. You'll start to see a pattern. Um, it's kind of how things work as to whether or not it's an organization you would feel comfortable being a part of. Well, there some are, of them are great and some aren't. There's a continuum. <laughs> I mean, irrespective of Florida, because our, our audience is a little broader. But, you know, I, I've seen there's kind of a continuum. I, I come from a portfolio management background from a prior career. I wasn't a portfolio manager, but I worked for a very large international portfolio management company. And so what was interesting to me when I moved to Florida, and I'd never had any experience in kind of the startup tech angel scene, is going, I did just what you described and went to a variety of angel groups. And it was curious to me to learn there was a continuum. A lot of of them were like clubs. Yeah. And so what I found was the motivation of being there was a combination of hanging out with some other smart, well-connected people once a month and looking at mm-hmm. some cool deals. And, you know, they might have had a minimum investment requirement, but in a way it was kind of like club dues. And, and we had a ni- we had a nice lunch at the country club. And they, right. And they and then they got to look at some pretty <laughs> cool deals and then people would informally uh, invest in those. Yep. And. What was interesting to me was, and so there was a very social aspect to it. I got the feeling that the people in the room were obviously, you know, they were accomplished business people. It wasn't clear to me that making money was the the number one driver of their participation. Mm-hmm. I think some of them, there was a give back component to it and making money they'd like to, but it was a very small allocation of their overall wealth. Right. And, and, and that's okay. Right. And then you have the other side of it. Right. Which are, com- so I'll give you some examples, I think, are the other side of that. Right. Uh-huh. Where we're making money is really so common angels, common angels, 
this group is a investment group, right? Like they, they, some of them know each other. They have, you know, that kind of thing. But it is primarily serial entrepreneurs who have, you know, done well for themselves who, yeah, there's a give back because they want to invest in other startups because they know what it's like to have been there and, and they want to see other people succeed. But they want to make money. Archangel Fund in New York, same thing, right? They're, they're that kind of guys. Our crowd over in Israel, same thing, right? This is a money-making venture for these people. I don't think either one is wrong, okay? Um, I think it's just a matter of what's your goal? If your goal is to hang out with, you know, some cool people, and to, you know, enjoy a nice lunch or dinner, then go that route. If your goal is to actually make money in the end, then I would say getting involved in a fund that is more active, that has a bigger pool, because the, the, guy, the funds that are more active see more deals. It's just how it works, right? So you're going to increase your chances of success. If you want to work with ones that you know, focus a lot on women, then you have like golden seeds, right? So if, if that's one of your things, and you're just like, hey, I want to invest in female companies and golden seeds is another one. And they're actually, they want to make money, mm. right? So everyone's a little bit different. So you can kind of pick if there's a, a cause that is important to you, in addition to making money, there are different groups all over and you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a local group if that's not what works for you. You know, there's other groups that will allow participation. And a lot of the bigger groups like Common and those guys, right, they do things that they do a lot of things online. So like they'll have people pitch and you can actually watch the pitch and you can do side by side. I don't like the or I personally don't like the angel organizations unless you're just going to allocate a portion of your money where I literally put it in a fund and someone else makes the investment deal for me. If it is paying a seat fee to have, you know, access to software where we can actually appropriately do our due diligence and we can have, you know, things prepared for us or some administrative stuff. I don't have a problem with that. Most of those are like a grand a year, right? The people who are charging that. When some people start saying like, I want 5,000 or 10,000 a year, I'm like, okay, now I'm better off just to go write the check on my own and invest that money. It doesn't make sense to do it that way. Yeah, what I was, you know, so I described the one example of how the continuum, you know, I saw the kind of club and on the other end, you know, you'd find some groups that because I'm from a portfolio management background, you know, you could actually see a pretty thorough due diligence process. And mm -hmm. even and, and, and more importantly to me, a post investment reporting process and on, yes. and ongoing <laughs> and ongoing monitoring process. And, and you could ask for like, what are your series returns? Like, you know, how's how have your you know, if you've had more than one fund, how did it do? You know, I think it's the bigger point is you got to find what it is that you want define what you want and then find the group that meets that. And it might be the more club social give back, let's make some money type, or it might be, no, I want to invite, be involved in a part of a fund that, you know, makes, this is a, an important part of my alternative investment allocation. I want to make some money on it. And, and, and there's everything in between too. Yeah. I think, I think that's absolutely true. And, and people just have to find the right fit for them. I mean, everyone's a little bit different and it kind of depends on what you're comfortable with and what your ultimate goals are for the, the money that you're putting out there. And then, and that might change over time, right? If you're just getting started, then maybe you want to try, you know, something that's much more casual. And then as you evolve, you want to go into something that is more structured. And the other option is like crowdfunding too, which you know, that's changing the rules a lot. I would only caution people that to understand that before they go that route. 
Yeah, particularly some with some Kickstarter news in the past couple of weeks of right. undelivered products, etc. <laughs> joy, it has been a joy uh, having you as a guest. Uh, we could we have talked for an hour and a half, and if I know the two of us, we could talk for another hour and a half. <laughs> uh, uh, you have so much to share. You've had so much experience as a successful entrepreneur, as and as an investor, and I really appreciate you on behalf of our audience spending so much time sharing your wisdom with them tonight. This has been a fantastic experience for them, and I've really enjoyed having you as a guest. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been awesome, and I'm looking forward to the next Startup Expo. So We'll have you back soon. Awesome. Thanks, Bob. <laughs>